Okay, here we go. 1 Corinthians 16. The title of my message today is All in Love. All in Love. Paul's beginning to draw things to a close here in our text. He makes a number of personal statements, um, greetings, um, and in the midst of all of it, um, here as we start off in verses 13 and 14, in the midst of this last chapter, he inserts some very interesting and important series of commands, imperative statements. So if you're looking at the big picture of the message today, um, I'm going to kind of try to go through this in three segments. So uh, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 first under the heading, Godspeed, Godspeed. And then uh, we'll look at verses 15 through 18 um, under the heading of good job. And then we'll look at verses 19 through 24 under the heading of goodbye. So let's look at these this morning. Uh, You may say, what can we get out of a bunch of names? Well, as you know, there's always a lot to glean from the Word of God, and there certainly is today. So let's jump in. Godspeed, verses 13 and 14. Uh, The term Godspeed, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a it's a farewell that was used uh, to wish people success as they would set off on a journey or a new venture in life. And Paul begins this last section uh, with a rapid-fire set of instructions to the church at Corinth, uh, commands that will help them to be successful in their Christian lives as they move forward. So let's look at each of them briefly. There are five of them. The first, be watchful. Be watchful, verse 13. You know, most of us have seen pictures, or maybe you've been there in person, to visit the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington Cemetery in uh, just outside Washington, D.C. How many of you have been to the the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? Yeah, a bunch of us. Um, At that monument, if you've ever been there or you've seen the video, um, are very well-trained guards, young men, who uh, take it very, very seriously. They're immaculate They're intense, and they clearly understand the job that they are doing. They are guards. They are guarding a monument, a very precious um, monument in our nation's capital. And anybody who steps inside the boundaries surrounding that monument find out very quickly that they mean business. If you don't believe me, you can Google it, and you'll find all kinds of little videos of them yelling at people, uh, or forcing them out of the area that they're not supposed to be in. Um, Be watchful, Paul says. Be alert. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Stay awake. Stay alert. Or you will be caught off guard. Peter says the same thing. Remember, Peter was there when Jesus spoke those words in the Garden of Gethsemane. In 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter was speaking about the activities of the evil one, he said in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that in one unguarded moment, you could be like Peter, denying Jesus. Do you realize that in one unguarded moment, you or I could destroy our marriage? 
Do you realize that in one unguarded moment, we could do something in our business life that would destroy our reputation for the rest of our career? This is important instruction. Stay alert. Be watchful. And here's the thing. You and I are at our most vulnerable when we're unaware of how vulnerable we actually are. Stay alert. Remember what Paul had told the Corinthians in this letter back in chapter 10 and verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Be watchful. Secondly, Paul says, stand firm in the faith. The men and women that, that, that lived in the time that Paul was writing to the Corinthians were facing all kinds of false teaching that was going on. These were people who were trying to distort the truth, distort the faith. And Paul knew these believers needed to have a solid grasp of the faith. Stand firm in the faith, he says. When he wrote to the church at Philippi, he shared a similar concern. In chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, he writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm. When you think about the idea of standing firm, perhaps a biblical story or two comes into your mind. How about this one? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three young men with everything going for them. Sure, they were far away from home. They were in a foreign country. Sure, they lived in a pagan context that wasn't ideal. But Daniel, their friend, had put them in a great position and life was going very well for them. Until it is, King Nebuchadnezzar came up with this great idea. Building a 90-foot high monument, overlaying it with gold and requiring everyone to bow down and worship it. They weren't asked to give up their Judaism. They weren't asked to renege on their faith. They were simply asked to bow down. Well, you know the story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bend. So Nebuchadnezzar said, well, then you'll burn. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Uh, We'll see about that, king. And Nebuchadnezzar gets a little mad. And he heats the furnace up seven times hotter than they'd ever heated it before. And they could get their furnace between 700 and 1,000 degrees. So we're talking hot. They got it cooking so much that the guards who opened the door to throw them in were killed by the heat themselves. And in that fire, three men who stood firm found the presence of a fourth man, didn't they? Whom I believe was the Lord Jesus himself. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, in our culture today, 21st century, we are being asked to bow down to all kinds of idols. We are being asked to bow down and worship at all kinds of shrines. Nobody cares that we have convictions about Christ or about the Bible. They just want us to bow down. 
Brothers and sisters, only those who are firm in the faith will be able to stand against the enemy. There is a great need for us not only to be those who are on guard and watchful, but to be those who are standing firm in the faith. Third, Paul says, act like men. Paul had previously told his readers in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3 that they were just babies. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 3? But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul's saying, if you were able to grow up, you'd be able to get some good food. You know, I have my little grandson down here in the second row, Joshua. And Joshua drinks milk. Now, I wanted to give him a little bite of the pie that I made yesterday because it was really good. Peanut butter chocolate pie. Ask me for the recipe. But I couldn't give it to him. He's not ready. He's a baby. Paul says, don't be babies. Grow up. Be mature. That's the idea. That's the picture here. It's a call to Christian manhood. It's a call to Christian maturity. And the interesting thing here in the language, the original language, the Greek language of the New Testament here, this this word, act like men, is just one word in, in the Greek language. And it doesn't have any feminine equivalent to it in the New Testament. Lots of words in the New Testament have a male version and a female version. This word doesn't. Why would it say act like men? Why doesn't it say act like men and act like women? I think very simply because the Bible calls on men, primarily fathers, husbands, men, to be courageous, to be bold, to be strong, to be soldiers, to fight the battles. He's talking about a level of maturity. Now, he wants women and children, too, in spiritual terms, to grow up into a courageous Christian maturity. But he addresses this to the men primarily, to lead in this area. How do we grow up into maturity? How do we grow up into courage in our Christian faith? And again, we always come back to the Word of God, don't we? Here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Paul told the Ephesians, this is why God has given pastors and teachers to the church, right? Ephesians 4, 12 to 14, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ to mature manhood, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. 
We don't want the Christians in our church or any God-believing church to be little, fearful babies who can be blown about by whatever idea comes through the pipe. We want them to grow to be courageous, mature, firm in the faith, watchful and alert. Then fourthly, notice he says, be strong. This quality really needs no explanation, but there's kind of a military metaphor that's running through here. Have you picked up on it? This idea of strength, courage, watchfulness, firmness. And here Paul adds, be strong. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these kinds of commands, I find myself asking, okay, Paul, how? How do I do this? How do I be watchful? Okay, I'll be watchful. How? Stand firm in the faith. Okay, how? Fine. Act like men. Will do. Be strong. Check. But how? And then Paul goes on in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. I don't think this is so much a fifth command, although it is. It is a command. As much as it is, if you want to use a cooking recipe again, it's the sauce in which all the other ingredients are cooked. Paul understands that it's possible for you and I to be alert, firm, courageous, strong, very military-like and cold and frigid and impersonal. And Paul, recognizing this, adds in here, hey, just, just in case any of you attempted to go down that road, here's the important part. Do it all in love. In love. So when I'm courageous, I do it in love. When I'm firm in the faith, I do it in love. When I'm strong, it's strong in love. When I'm watchful and alert, it's in a loving way. It's got to be in it all. And that's a challenge for us, frankly. You know, if it's truth that prevents our love from sliding down into some wishy-washy, you know, willy-nilly, weak sentimentalism, it's love, on the other hand, that prevents our truth from sliding into some kind of a rigid, cold, impersonal arrogance. And again, the Scriptures are perfectly clear and perfectly balanced. Those are the five rapid-fire instructions Paul gives. So he moves from Godspeed, be successful in your Christian lives as you move forward by following these commands. Now he moves into a well-done speech to a specific family that can also be instructive for us this morning. Good job, he says, secondly, in verses 15 to 18. Heather Hills, what is your family known for? Think about it for a minute. Do people know your house in your community? Maybe you're known for your dog or cat. (laughs) Maybe you're known for your mailbox or the decorations in your yard. Maybe you're known for the loudness of your son's or daughter's car radio when they're coming and going from your house. 
Maybe you're known for any number of different things. But in this next section, in 15 to 18, there are five words that stick out to me from this text. In fact, all of them come from the text, except one. Let's take a look at them. First word, conversion. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. The first thing we know about this family is that they were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're not told that they were religious people. We're told that they were converted people. And when Paul remembers back to the start of this church in Corinth, Stephanus and his family were right at the front of the line to know and follow Jesus. If we were to turn back to chapter 1 of this letter and look at verses 14 to 16, Paul was addressing an issue of baptism and the confusion that was surrounding it. Listen to what he says. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Parentheses. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anybody else. End of parentheses. Think about this for a moment. Paul goes into Corinth, preaching in, in the synagogues. Hundreds of people probably came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of Paul's ministry. He clearly couldn't be involved in the baptism of them all. He obviously didn't remember them all. But he was in no doubt about this. Stephanus and his household were converted. And they were baptized. They were changed. Here's a question. Do people know, people outside of our church, do people in your neighborhood, people at your workplace, do they know that your family is a converted family? Do your neighbors know that they could come to you for information about Jesus? Do they know that? Second word, devotion. Conversion, of course, is a starting point in the Christian life, right? Paul, we're told in Acts 18, 11, had stayed in Corinth for 18 months. It wasn't just about conversions. It was also about teaching, discipling, training, teaching them all the information that they needed to keep on following Christ. You know, when two people get married, we're going to have a wedding here pretty soon, right? A couple weeks? Um, we, have a, we have a wedding right here, uh, July 1st. When two people get married, usually, you know what happens, you know, I pronounce them husband and wife, kiss the bride, smack, and then they, they turn around, they go down the aisle, right? So, no, not smack at, you know, smack... That kind of smack. Some families. Um, anyway, um, you know, they usually, they go down the aisle, they greet people, they eat some cake, and they're out of there, right? I mean, they're not looking to hang around. They, they don't walk down the aisle, married, and then look at each other and say, uh, what do you want to do now? You know? I, I was thinking, could you take the car? I think, I want to go visit my mom, you know? No, 
These people are devoted to each other now. They want to spend every waking moment with their new spouse. Now notice these dear people, the Stephanuses. They stand out in the whole of the New Testament because they were converted and they were also devoted. See what the text says? They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They were willing. They were useful. They weren't waiting for an assignment. Stephanus and his family got converted, and they just started doing stuff. They served the saints. You know, if somebody said, hey, somebody over here needs a blanket, they get them a blanket. Somebody over here needs a cup of cold water, they'll take that to them. Somebody needs them to watch their kids, we'll go sit with them. Somebody needs a word of encouragement, we'll give it to them. They weren't waiting for a position. They weren't waiting for prominence. They were involved in ministry. They were devoted to the point of exhaustion, that word means. They were devoted to serving their brothers and sisters. And the idea that Christian living would be sitting in a lovely auditorium like this for an hour or two a week and then walking out and doing very little else the rest of the week would have been completely foreign to a family like the Stephanuses. They were devoted to serving the saints. It's a great word. Notice third, a third word, submission. Paul says, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. These are the kinds of people you need to submit to. This is servant leadership at its best. These are the ones. Instead of the Corinthians, I mean, think about the Corinthians. They're fighting for their rights. They're fighting for privileges. They're fighting for respect. They're forming little factions here and there. They should be fighting for a chance to follow after people like Stephanus and his family. And, of course, the key to submission in service is to wear the garment of humility, as Peter says. We know that this is something many of the Corinthians struggle with because of pride. But you know what you should do, brothers and sisters? You should look around your auditorium. You should find brothers and sisters who are devoted to serving the saints, and you should humble yourself and learn from them and follow their example. Maybe come alongside and say, help me understand what it means to be devoted to serving others. Let me follow you around. Let me learn from you. A fourth word, inspiration. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. In other words, Paul says, they inspired me. They rang my bell. They topped up my battery. They refreshed me. The importance of companionship. I mean, the Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul, right? Inspired, writing these deep theological letters, and yet he's a man who needs friends, who needs companionship, who needs refreshment. And these three fellows walk in the door, and they refresh him. You want to be a Stephanus. You want to be a Fortunatus. You want to be an Achaicus. And if you want to be that to somebody, just do it. We're not going to sign you. We're not going to match you up. Hey, go refresh that person. 
Just walk around with your eyes open. Walk around with your heart full. And you'll find all kinds of opportunities to inspire others, even today. Look at another word, last word, recognition. Families like this deserve recognition, Paul says. Give recognition to such people. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, the whole future of Heather Hills Baptist Church is right along these lines. I believe it with all my heart. Whether this church has an impact in the coming years or not will be directly related to many of the things that don't have the highest profile. It's not going to be some whiz-bang program or big event or something. That's not what's going to make the impact. It's going to be directly related to God's people understanding the ministry of Stephanus and his household. One of the greatest ways that Indianapolis will know that Jesus is alive is through the loving, serving, devoted lifestyle of ordinary Christian families just like yours and just like mine. So let's get to it. Let's get to it. All right, let's move on to the last section. Paul says goodbye. Verses 19 to 24. In these last statements, Paul is addressing, remember who's he addressing? He's addressing the Corinthians. The Corinthians. People who have been defiant. People who have been divided. People who have formed all these factions, and yet they're a church that Paul loves. Loves them. He loves them. And now he sends some final greetings, and this comes out so strongly here. I divide the greetings up into three categories. The first, external greetings. So Paul gives greetings from outside the church. In this, uh, this case, there's three of them. First, the churches of Asia send you greetings. So th- those who sometime before had lived in paganism, lived in confusion, lived without God, lived without hope, been part of the, the pluralism of their day, with all these different gods, all this interest in the afterlife, out of that region, the Lord Jesus had redeemed a people for himself. And now these various churches were popping up, churches that Paul had started largely, and they're sending their greetings to these believers. Second, the greetings also come, if you skip down a phrase or two, the greetings come from all the brothers. I think this is probably a reference to the the traveling companions of the Apostle Paul. We don't know exactly who they are, but the Corinthians were evidently able to identify them just from this phrase. The brothers greet you. Then third, in the middle there, the greetings of this lovely couple, Aquila and Prisca. Many of you know, know her by Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Paul identifies these individuals specifically by name, and it's not surprising. When Paul left Athens and moved on to Corinth, when he arrived there, he met this couple who were tent makers like him. They partnered up. 
In fact, they let him, they, they offered him his, their home for him to stay in as well. And they had a wide impact, it appears, on the church. Not only in Corinth, but on leaders in the church, like Apollos, who they had discipled, and others as well. So greetings from outside. Then internal greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the teenagers have been waiting for that. Now, the kiss, yeah, they want to start practicing. Yeah. The, the kiss was the common manner in which friends would say hello to each other in the Middle East, okay? So this is, this is a customary thing. So if you think in terms of uh, if you went to France and, you know, they, they give a little peck on each side of the cheek, they don't actually kiss the cheek, they kiss the air next to the cheek, but we won't get into that. Uh, or you go to Italy, or if you go to some of these other countries, and you've seen how there, there's kisses that are given in greeting. That's the right picture. And, and, and this idea, this affection, affectionate greeting, runs all through Judaism, too. If you look back at the history of the Old Testament, from the early chapters of Genesis, you find it. Uh, Genesis 27, uh, verse 26, Jacob brings a sacrifice uh, to be blessed by his dad, and... Um, uh, and, and the dad says, come here, my son, and kiss me. And so he went to him and kissed him. Uh, the, the, remember when Jacob and Esau reconciled later in Genesis 33, verse 4, Esau ran out to, to meet Jacob and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. Uh, in 1 Samuel 20 and verse 41, we, we read about David and Jonathan Best friends, they're saying goodbye. They wept over one another. They kissed one another. The same thing in Luke chapter 15. We read about the prodigal son. You remember that story? When the father sees the prodigal coming from a great way off, he ran, fell on his neck, and he kissed him. It was the normal, customary expression of relationship with one another. Now, what made the kiss holy was not a, it wasn't a special kind of kiss. It wasn't a particular kind of kiss. It was the fact that they were holy. That's what made the kiss holy. It was because they were part of the family of God now. They were converts. So it's not some special kind of a kiss. Sorry, teenagers. It was just a customary greeting. Today, we would say a warm, affectionate handshake, an arm around the shoulder. Hey, give me five you know, may express the same kind of sentiment today. We're friends. We're in this together. Glad to see you again. That's what this is about. How do we apply this? No. Uh, we're not going to go around kissing each other. So, so, some, some of the ladies, some of the older ladies, occasionally give me a little peck on my cheek. I'm just saying that out loud, okay? And that's okay. I don't mind that. I tell Deborah. But ordinarily, 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 we don't go around kissing each other unless we're related, right? But how do we apply this? Here's what I think Paul is saying. There should be some obvious signs of affection among the people of God. It ought not to be a stiff thing to be together and to go to church. We shouldn't come to church and hold each other at arm's length. The family of God has black and white, rich and poor, fat and thin, wise and not so wise, and so on. We're all kinds of people, and it is utterly different from anything else in the whole of the universe. The church 
is unique in this way. At this point, I'd like to cut to a, a video of Louis Armstrong singing Wonderful World. But I don't have the video. But do you remember it? And I won't try to imitate him either. I see friend greeting friend saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That's how it's supposed to be. I went to Heather Hills Baptist Church and I saw friend greeting friend saying, how do you do? And they were really saying, I love you. And I said to myself, what a wonderful church. That's the way it should be when we gather together. Whenever we gather together, whether we gather together in a large group, whether we gather together in small groups, whether we're just one-on-one. There should be signs, obvious signs of affection because we are brothers and sisters in a family together. The issue is not kissing, all right? The issue is loving. The issue is caring and letting people know it's okay. This is not a society. This is not a club. This is not a classroom. This is not a seminar. This is a church. And we are a family. And I think that's what Paul is encouraging us and encouraging the Corinthians. Finally, some personal greetings. Look at verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) He was typing, and then all of a sudden he stopped and picked up penmanship. No, of course not, right? They're not typing back then. What does this mean? It means that the body of this letter had been written by somebody else. Uh, we call those a secretary or a um, mananuensis or whatever that term is. Uh, if, if you look back at the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians, somebody called Sosthenes is thought to have written this for Paul. Um, but here he says to Sosthenes at the end of the letter, give me the pen, Sosthenes, I'm going to write this part myself. He's bought the greetings from around the church. He's brought the greetings from the brothers. He's brought the greetings from Prisca and Aquila. He's encouraged greeting one another in affection. And now he says, this part is coming from me to you. How does he finish it? Well, he finishes it with a warning. Notice four words here. Warning is the first one. Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Wow, kind of dramatic, Paul. I thought you were saying goodbye. What's he saying here? Why would he end with such a sober warning? The answer is not because Paul hates. That's because Paul loves. Paul loves. What's he saying here? He's referring to a matter of religious hypocrisy. Don't tell me about the fact that you're in Christ and there's no evidence of it. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. There's a whole bunch of you Corinthians that aren't keeping commandments. And if you have no love for the Lord, there's a curse for you. So repent. He also reminds them not only uh, of the warning, but that he's waiting and that they're waiting. He says, our Lord, come. This is the, the, the Aramaic word maranatha. It's a word that had been brought into the the common vernacular of the Greek society. Paul is waiting for the coming of Jesus. 
You know, one in 25 verses in the New Testament are about the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. And you see the connection here. I'm giving you this warning. And remember, we're waiting. He may come at any time. In other words, get your life in line. The warning goes out in light of the waiting. Can I warn you this morning? Brothers and sisters, if you are a false professor of Jesus Christ, I would call, up, call on you to give that up and lay hold on Jesus for the first authentic time today. Don't be satisfied with mere attendance at a church or having your name in a directory or going through this thing Sunday after Sunday. Say today, on the last day of our study in 1 Corinthians, what I'm going to do is make sure I have a repentant, obedient heart before Christ, that I call out to him for his mercy and grace and faith and forgiveness. I want to heed the warning that Paul is giving. I want to be found waiting for the return of my Savior. Third word, I want to be under the blessing, the blessing that Paul gives, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. It's the same way he began the book back in 1 Corinthians 1.3. Grace to you. There's no other word, really, in the Christian vocabulary that most fully and sufficiently expresses what God has done and will do for his people in Jesus. It's the word grace. We love it, don't we? Amazing grace. It's grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, grace at the end, all the way through. The grace be with you. Warning, waiting, blessing, and finally loving. Look at verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. All of you. Isn't that interesting? All of you. The ones who have bugged me. The ones who have disappointed me. The ones who have encouraged me. The ones who have blessed me. The ones I've had to reprove and rebuke. The ones who were fighting at the communion table. The ones who were setting up little factions and dividing the church. He says, I want you to know the good, the bad, the ugly. Church is church. I send my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. The letter ends on a tender note, doesn't it? I'll ask the praise team to come back up. We'll sing a final song here in a minute. As they're coming, just think about some final application here. As we think back through the letter of 1 Corinthians, his letter has been strong, hasn't it? It's a strong letter. It's a clear letter. The source of Paul's love, we know, is the Lord Jesus himself. The whole framework of his love is the Lord Jesus. In fact, the most favorite phrase that Paul uses in all of his writings is right here in the last verse. And it's how he finishes. You'd expect him to finish with his favorite phrase, don't you? He does. In Christ Jesus. It's Paul's favorite phrase. We are either in Christ or we're not in Christ. In the same way that you're either married or you're not married. It's clear. And if you don't know whether you are or you're not, you're in a dangerous predicament. 
same is true spiritually. Paul says, I send my love to you all in Christ Jesus. In the original text, there's no amen at the end. There's an amen inserted here as is kind of traditional. But the oldest manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts, don't have an amen at the end. They end with Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And so they should. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing a song that I think communicates what Paul is trying to communicate in these final words. That everything that they do, everything that they do, needs to be done in love. That they are all together in this pursuit of heaven. That they are waiting for Jesus together. That they are brothers and sisters. That they have affection for one another. That they long for one another. So let's sing this with understanding as we sing it even to the Lord and encourage one another with it.